chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and we're kind of continuing in this uh, study of shame, I guess you could say, um, and how the cross handles that. And I'll tell you, even the, the name of uh, the sermon in your notes, I changed it by the time uh, <laughs> you know, this sermon comes. So it is now Cross Off Mishandled Shame Part 2. Last week was Cross Off Mishandled Shame Part 1. And so we're doing that, and then I added one more verse than what your bulletin says. Uh, we're going to, uh, down to verse 6 in our study. Um, but what we've been doing so far is we've been kind of taking this in-depth look at the greatest problems that face us as humans, that the greatest, most threatening, uh, looming problems that we face. And what we're seeing is how God, in the cross of Christ Jesus, has crossed out those problems for us. He has solved them. He has answered them for us. And, and of course, the, the, the point there, the um, implication is, if we can trust God for these greatest of problems then we can trust him for each and every problem that comes into our lives, whether they seem big or, or little, coronavirus, economy, sickness, you know, just whatever it may be, they are really quite small in comparison to these great problems God has solved. And if he has solved those for us in the cross, then we can trust him for everything else. And so, so far we've looked at guilt, our problem of guilt before God, that we have a debt of sin that we owe to God, and of course, in the cross of Christ Jesus, he took that guilt upon himself. Then we turn to shame before God, that God maybe just forgives us, but maybe uh, he will only look at us with shame and, and not, not loving us. And, but we saw that in Christ, on the cross, Jesus bore our shame and now clothes us with his honorable righteousness. And then we looked at shame before men. You could say wrongful shame before men because this is when we are doing godly things, living according to God's word and, and sharing the gospel, but other people don't like it. And we say, well, how do we deal with that kind of shame? Because that can make us clam up and not want to share, not want to live the way God wants us to. But we saw that in the cross, Christ has purchased this blessing of experiencing gladness in him and the promise of future rewards. So we said that gladness in, in God is greater than glory from men. Then we looked at shame for weakness, that is unsinful weakness, maybe a, a physical ailment or some circumstance in our life that, that we feel makes us weak and we feel ashamed for that weakness. But what we saw that week uh, from, from Paul's life was that God actually takes that weakness and uses it for his glory in a way that he couldn't have through our strength. And so that we, we've seen all those areas that, that shame uh, really shouldn't apply to us. And then we ask the question, well, is there any place for shame in the Christian life? And the answer last week was yes. We looked at 1 Corinthians 5, and we saw that there is a place that we should feel shame for unrepentant sin. And there are actually occasions when another Christian is walking in unrepentant sin that we should help them feel that rightful shame for their sin. And we saw that the, the cross purifies that type of shame because it can actually lead them to repentance and faith and uh, restoration and, and all these things. So this, this shame no longer has a shameful effect. It actually has a purifying effect because of Christ's work on the cross. So what I did last week was I gave all of us a license to shame freely. No, I'm joking, and that's what, well, that's what we're going to cover this week, uh, because that's a real issue, isn't it? 
because we have the, the, the responsibility, the obligation really as Christians to help one another feel shame if we are walking in unrepentant sin. And so the, the question is, <coughs> excuse me, choked on my, my uh, saliva there. <clears throat> if, if, a, if people in a church are just going around shaming one another, right, then how can we be a t- this type of church with love and unity and transparency and, and you know, intimacy and upbuilding, you know, the, the thing that a church is supposed to be? How can we possibly do both? How can a person in our church feel comfortable or in our families or in our marriages or uh, in our friendships? How can they feel comfortable being open and vulnerable when, when they know uh, that you, you might shame them? You know, how, how can we keep from ruining relationships when we know, well, I'm supposed to help them feel shame in this issue, but, but how do I keep from ruining that relationship? And I guess the, the kind of a lead-off question from that is, how can I make it easier for people to swallow the bitter pill of being called out for their sin? Uh, because again, if, if all we are is a group of, of people that are inspecting one another and, and always you know, waiting for each other to trip up and calling each other out on every little thing and, and you know, doing it in an unloving way, then we might as well go home. We're not going to get anywhere. It really can destroy things. And again, this isn't just church, our church. This isn't just Poplar Springs. This is any church. But this, it's any Christian relationship. A marriage, a family, father, son, you know, mother, daughter, mother, son. Whatever you want to look at. Friends. You can destroy relationships if you mishandle shame in any way. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Paul's going to give us some guiding principles that we need to know that can transform the way shame can be used uh, in our lives and the way we should handle it. And so what we'll first see is what kind of attitudes and actions it is uh, that, that ruins um, God's plan for, for holding one another accountable. But then we'll see what kind of attitudes and actions actually advance this God-given, believer-edifying plan God has for us to not only uh, encourage one another, but to hold one another accountable, even when it means helping us, each other, feel shame for our sin. So, it, may, it won't be probably perfectly clear where I'm going here as we read the text, but I promise if you're patient with me, I can make sense of it uh, for you, I hope. I promised, didn't I? Oh, man. Well, we're going to do it. Let's read God's Word together. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul says this, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart." Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. 
All right, that is God's word. That's what we will study today. And um, let's just go ahead and and bow our heads and ask God to um, open our, our eyes and open our hearts to what he has for us. Father God, I pray that through your word and by the power of your spirit, you would help each and every one of us who names the name of Christ to to not uh, be a a toxic, uh, condemning, uh, judgmental type of Christian, Lord. God, I pray that you would open us up to true fellowship, true accountability, and true building up of one another as is your glorious plan for the church. God, I understand that we will need great wisdom on this matter. Even after this sermon, we will need great, great wisdom on how to handle this uh, sensitive topic of, of helping people know their sin and even feel shame for it, Lord. So God, I pray that you would not only open our minds to understand it, but that you would also change our hearts. God, we want to do all of this from an attitude of obedience and humility under you and towards others, God. Lord, I even thank you now that Christ has paid for our sins and even the ways that we might mishandle shame, Lord. Thank you for covering that sin, but teach us to do better, God. I pray all this in your Son's holy name. Amen. All right, so we are talking about, again, this mishandling of shame. We saw one version last week, but we'll look at uh, more this week. I'll go ahead and give you this attitude uh, and actions that ruin our ability uh, to walk God's path here and, and have a flourishing Christian community. And so here it is. You see it up on the screen. The problem is self-focused pride. If you want to get right down to it, what it is that destroys our relationships as we try to encourage and hold one another accountable is self-focused pride. I uh, got a phone call from a, a missionary buddy of mine, and he, he needed something else from me, but he asked me, uh, you know, so what are you preaching this week? And so I sort of started going through what, what I was going to talk about and um, just how, how pride, you know, destroys our ability to, to do life with fellow Christians, the, the way we are so focused on ourselves, always thinking about ourselves and obsessed really with, with ourselves and was always so worried about what others think about us. And he said, man, Jeff, I, I got to tell you, in, in probably the last 10 years of my walk with Christ, what you're going to be preaching is probably the biggest thing that I have learned and that has made the biggest difference not only in my life but in my relationships with other people. And I was just like, wow, it's just kind of random that uh, you call this week. Random, right? Christians don't say that. Anyways, um, because God had us have this, and I actually called him even after I wrote a lot of this sermon and was like, what do you think, man? Does this, you know, match up? Anyways, um, here's one thing he said to me that I I thought was was so interesting. He said, proud, self-focused people are often the worst and the best judges. They're often the worst and the best judges. Proud and self-focused people. And he said, what he meant by it is, they're the worst people at judging when they should, when someone's walking in unrepentant sin, but they're the best people at judging when they shouldn't. And so I hope I'll make that more clear. But this was his you know, understanding from his experience. And as I thought about it, that was certainly true for my own life and for my own relationships. 
when you're being proud and self-centered, self-focused, you become the best and worst judge. The, the best at judging when you shouldn't and the worst at judging when you should. And what I want to show you is that that's not just my experience. That, that's not just my missionary friend's experience. That is the, the biblical experience and the bi- biblical pattern. And I want to show you this uh, again from this example from the, the church at Corinth. And so on this first point, we're not even going to, to look at these uh, verses. We're going to look at the, the surrounding context of what Paul is responding to here. And so basically, the Corinthian church had that double problem. They, as we saw last week, they had the problem of not shaming people when they should, but then shaming people when they shouldn't is what we'll see they were doing this week. And so let me just show you four things. Pride makes us, and we'll begin here, keep from shaming. That's what, that's what we saw last week, right? They, they, uh, we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it said this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. So what we saw last week was a man was walking in an open, shameless, unrepentant sin. Remember, that's uh, present tense. He has his father's wife. So he's continuing to walk in this sin, and yet they are arrogant, it said. They were not calling him out on this sin. And in some way, Paul says, that is tied to your arrogance. You know, I don't know exactly their reasoning for not calling this man out on their sin. And we know actually from further in the Bible, they had sexual immorality kind of rampant uh, among their church anyway. So maybe it was partially that. They didn't want the standard changed for everyone. But maybe they just didn't want to be viewed as an intolerant, um, unaccepting type of church. You know, one of, one of those churches, one of those fundamentalist churches that actually take God at his word and o- try to obey his commands by his grace. You know, maybe they didn't want to be viewed that way. Maybe they didn't just, you know, didn't want their church to be drugged through the mud. Maybe just no one in the church was willing to do the dirty work of calling this man out. I don't know what their, their, their problem was, but it's, it's, it's quite apparent that their pride, being self-focused rather than God-focused, was keeping them from properly, uh, fittingly shaming this man as he was walking through unrepentant sin. We actually see another example. There's multiple examples of this in the Bible. But you might remember in Galatians 2, Paul says, um, I oppose Cephas to his face. That's Peter. Cephas is the same, same guy. And the reason he opposed uh, Peter to his face was because some Judaizers had come into the Galatian church, some, uh, the circumcision party they are called there in Galatians, and they said, hey, uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, they can't eat together, they can't fellowship together. That, that's sinful, by the way. The, the, the cross, that, it broke that, that dividing wall of hostility, Ephesians tells us. So it was sinful for the Judaizers to come and do that. No, you can't, you can't hang out with the, the Gentile Christians. You have the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and they can't mingle together. And rather than Peter rebuking them and saying, no, that's not right, and, and you guys need to, to correct that sinful uh, pattern, you know what he did? He kept his mouth shut, and he actually did it. He, he separated himself from the Gentiles. And so Paul comes in and he says, you, you know, in Galatians 2 it says, he feared the circumcision party, and so Paul opposed him to his face and set him straight. 
And so that, that we see with Peter, even the Apostle Peter um, was unwilling to, to call people out on their sin because of his own pride. And that, as we saw again, was the Corinthian problem. And that, that can be the, the case with us as well. It's, 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 it's dirty work to shame another person. It's possible that our reputation may become marred if we call someone out. People might think of us as unkind or unloving, ungracious if we call someone out on their sin, and so we just don't do it. But really, that's being proud and self-focused. That person needs us. They desperately need uh, to, to know about their sin in the same way, uh, anyways, in the same way a person with cancer needs the scan they need to know about their sin, and, and we're put in their life to help them see that, and we refrain from it. Why? Because of self-focused pride. But not only that, on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, pride makes us shame unjustly. So you have them not shaming when they should, but on the other hand, they shame unjustly when they should not. Uh, let me just give you what I see the Corinthian church doing. I just quickly scanned the book of Corinthians to see ways that they were shaming other Christians for non-biblical reasons. In chapter 7, uh, we see that they were shaming those who didn't practice marital self-denial. That is, they'd say, you shouldn't get married, or if you are married, you should abstain from your conjugal rights, and some would even say you should separate from your wife. That Paul sets them straight on all of those uh, counts, but that's what they're doing. They're shaming people. No, no, I'm, I'm more righteous because I uh, deny myself these things. Chapter 7, 8, and 10, uh, he's shaming people, or they were shaming people didn't, who didn't adhere to the Mosaic law, uh, dietary restrictions, and even uh, males being circumcised. Chapter 11, they were shaming the poor in the way that they handled the Lord's Supper. You might remember that. The, the, some people were getting full and drunk while others were going uh, hungry. Uh, it said there, they're shaming the poor there. Chapter 12, they were shaming those who had less conspicuous, less spectacular spiritual gifts. Oh, you, you can't, uh, you don't prophesy, you don't teach, you don't heal. We don't need you. You, you can read it in, in all these chapters. Then, as we'll be talking about today, in chapters 1, 3, and 4, they were shaming spiritual leaders who were not their preferred leader. And they're shaming the people who follow the other uh, spiritual leaders as well. And they were doing this to puff themselves up by associating with their favorite leader and putting down other people who followed a different leader. So they would shame that leader. They'd shame uh, the people who followed him. And they actually did that with Paul. If you look there in 1 Corinthians 4.18, so that's the chapter we're in, but just verse 18, he says this, Some are arrogant, that's proud, right? That's what we're talking about. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. You can see this in, in context, and in, even in 2 Corinthians, it picks up on this again. But what's going on is Paul had ministered to this church at one point, uh, and he'd stayed there for quite a while, you know, helped build up the church, but then he had to leave. His intention was to come back to them soon. At the time of the writing of this letter, it had been uh, an estimated about four years since he had uh, been there. And so some people trying to shame Paul were saying, oh, well, he hasn't come back like he said he would. 
You know, maybe he doesn't really love us. Maybe, maybe he was just, you know, a, a false prophet. You know, my, my favorite teacher over here, he's, he's right here. We can trust him. We can listen to him. But Paul, we can't listen to him. So they're shaming Paul simply because he didn't make, wasn't able to make the trip back to Corinth. And so that's, that's another example of them shaming unjustly. By the way, if you look at verse 6, Paul kind of sums up what's going on here. Uh, chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. And we'll see what these things are here in a moment. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Do you see the two problems there? They're, they're, they're being puffed up. They have this pride, this self-centered pride, puffed up in favor one against another, trying to, to bolster their ego, their reputation. And what they are doing is shaming people. How? By going beyond what is written. That's talking about in Scripture. People are shaming uh, fellow Christians for things that are not scripturally wrong. God is the lawmaker, so this person is not actually breaking a law, but they're shaming them as though they were. So they didn't shame someone for clear sexual immorality because of their pride, yet they're shaming them for, for poverty and less uh, spectacular spiritual gifts. And, and they're shaming them all these other ways when they really shouldn't be. And that's what pride does to us. Pride makes us call people out on unjust things, things that are not actually sins against God. It, it may feel like it's something we don't like, but it's not actually a sin against God. But that's what pride does. It makes us focused on our wants, our desires, our reputation. Thirdly, we see pride makes us assume the worst. Pride makes us assume the worst. Again, you think about Paul. It says, some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. They don't know why he couldn't come. I mean, did they send uh, an emissary to say, hey, Paul, what's the reason you couldn't come? Are you mad at us? Are you bitter against us? They didn't bother to find that out. Yet they went ahead and assumed, hey, we know Paul's heart here. Paul is unloving. Paul is unkind because he's not coming back to us. But here's what Paul says about that. Uh, verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. His point there was, you guys are making these assumptions about me, but you guys can't judge the heart. You can't see my reason. You can't see the reasons other people are doing things, that you're shaming them for unjust things, or you're just assuming the worst about them. I mean, have you ever done that? I, I know I haven't. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I really can think of times, my wife's back there, I'm looking at her, <laughs> uh, that, that, you know, she'll say something to me, and what I will think is, oh, how dare she say that to me? I know what she really meant by that. Hmm, that's interesting, Jeff. You can see into your wife's heart what she really meant by that. Or, or what about you, ladies? Uh, how could he do that again? He, he knows that gets under my skin. Wow, that's cool. You know why he did that, because you can see into his heart. But you, you just name the example. This is what pride makes us do. It makes us think like we can actually uh, use heart ray vision and know what's going on in that person's heart. And we make assumptions and we naturally assume the worst. 
then we don't stop there. We don't stop there. Pride, rather than coming to them and saying, okay, I, I see this problem, and talking it through with them, by the way, would be a good thing to do rather than assuming the worst. Rather than trying to, you know, lead them towards repentance if they're really walking in sin, pride makes us shame unlovingly. That's the fourth thing this uh, self-centered pride does. You think about, again, the way these people are talking about Paul. Verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Paul has heard about people saying this. No one came to Paul and said, hey, brother Paul, I really respect you and your ministry, and I, I know you're doing a lot of great things, but I just want to tell you, this, this kind of seems wrong to me that you're not coming back. Can you explain that to me? Or, man, I really think you should repent of this because it's dishonoring to God. And uh, No, what they were doing is assuming the worst and then slandering his name and, and talking behind his back, not approaching him. There's no opportunity for repentance. There's no opportunity for restoration. They are simply trying to tear him down. I should stop giving examples about myself because it's really going to make me look terrible. Um, but I've told you guys about this before, so I guess I can't make it any worse. Um, God brought it to my attention uh, that in my marriage, I was playing something that I call the blame game. Okay, And the blame game was where I would do something wrong uh, in some way and, and my wife would call me out on it, right? Jeff, you, you know, that's really not a good way to, to do this. Or, uh, Jeff, that, that's, that's not right to, to do. And you know what? That would make me angry. I'd say, oh, in my heart, how dare she call me out on this? You know, that's terrible. And then what I would do is I would wait for her to trip up. You're going to take me down a notch, tag your it, I'll, I'll go right back at you. And I would wait, and I would. I would wait for her to slip up so that I could then heap shame on her. I can't believe you would do that. All I was doing was trying to not take her down a notch and put myself back up on this level of superiority. That's what I was doing. That had nothing to do with the glory of God or the good of my wife. Nothing. And I had to give it a name because I needed to really think about it and recognize it when I'd be doing that in my own life. But again, you can think of the examples in your own life maybe of ways you, you, you're, you're really just trying to attack that person, not serve them. You're, you're really just trying to, to puff yourself up and, sh- and, and show how much better you are, how superior you are, not, not really help them. You're more worried about the way they've offended you than the way they've offended Christ, and you want to look good, you want them to feel bad, and it's done unlovingly. There, there's, there's no... Um, Again, talking with that friend on the phone, he said, people know, uh, they, they can hear it in your tone and they can see it in your eyes uh, when you're truly seeking their best interest. And, and that, that, that this ruins things. So we could go through all the right steps of, of church discipline. We could go through all the right steps, but if we do it in an unloving manner, it will have a terrible, terrible effect. So this is, this is what we're looking at. Uh, if we have this pride and this, this, this self-centeredness, this self-focus, it, it'll make it almost impossible to have fruitful Christian relationships. That's marriages, our relationships with our children, our relationships with friends, and our church community. It will make it almost impossible. But there is an answer. And that's what we'll look at uh, with Paul here next. Number two, the answer is Christ. Centered or Christ focused 
faithfulness? The answer is Christ-focused faithfulness. So the problem was uh, self-focused pride, but the answer is Christ-focused faithfulness. Paul is going to give himself here as an example uh, to the Corinthian church of how they should uh, think of themselves and how, how they should get rid of this pride and how they should respond to charges brought against them and how they should uh, do charges in the right way. So we'll see it here in just a moment how Paul responds to this. And this is exactly what he was responding to, this uh, people tearing down some leaders and puffing up other leaders and trying to uh, do that just to, you know, again, serve their ego, serve their pride. So he's responding to that here in verse 1 and 2 of uh, 1 Corinthians 4. He says, This is how one should regard us, speaking of these, these teachers, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So again, in this context of people even shaming Paul, trying to make him look lesser than these other Christians, trying to puff up other people, Paul responds in, in a way that, that I, I really love. Basically, he says, who cares? Who cares which is the better teacher? Who's the better orator? Who can be present with you? Who cares? Why are we comparing? And because you see how he talks about it there, he says, here's how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Think about what Paul could have done here, okay? If Paul had this uh, self-focused pride, what he would have done is said, well, you want to know uh, what, where Apollos is messing up? Here, here's where he's messing up. You guys are going to shame me? Let me show you where Apollos is being shameful and, and, and Cephas is being shameful. Let me show you their problems. He would shame them, right? Because he's got to not take them down a notch. And he would say, well, here's why I'm really the better teacher. Here's why I'm really the better uh, person you should be following. But he doesn't do that. What he says is, here's how you should regard us as servants and stewards. Is that a high and mighty title to be a servant and a steward? No, those are both uh, deprecating uh, titles. I am underneath uh, Christ. I am I'm a servant of Christ. I am a steward of Christ. That means I have nothing of my own to offer. I have only what he has placed in my hands. My, this ministry of carrying the gospel, the mysteries of Christ, which were revealed in Christ, uh, the mysteries of God. So he's saying, who cares? I, I don't care who's the better teacher. I don't care about any of these things. Just think of us, uh, you know, you want to you shame us? Just shame all of us. We're just servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful to who? Is it faithful to the whims and wishes of uh, each church member there? Is it, uh, you know, jumping through whatever hoops they have? No. It's faithful to Christ. And that's what he's saying here is, I'm not worried uh, about pleasing all of you. What I'm worried about is being faithful to Christ. So I'm not self-focused. I'm merely a servant. I'm merely a steward. And I'm not uh, worried about, you know, pleasing you. I'm worried about being faithful to Christ. And we see that there. The answer is Christ-focused faithfulness. And he goes on to show a little bit more of, of how he has this attitude um, verse 3 there, he says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. 
That is incredibly non-self-focused. He says, you know, you guys are making these judgments against me, but it actually means very little to me uh, what you guys think of me as, as a person in that sense. And you know what? It actually doesn't mean much to me what I think of me. That's what, that's what he says there. Uh, so he's not focused on himself. He's not focused on, on his ego or his reputation. But he says there in verse 4, here's why. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation from God. What he's saying here is, the reason it means very little to me that you guys judge me or that I even judge me is the judgments of man are quite insignificant compared to the judgments of God. And he says, it is the Lord who judges me. But he did say there, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Meaning, I don't know of any unrepentant sin I'm walking in, but that doesn't mean I could be unaware of some sin I've done and haven't, you know, repented of or, you know, asked forgiveness of. I'm, I'm not aware of something I've done against another person and I haven't, you know, uh, told them I'm sorry for it or whatever. He says, I'm not thereby acquitted. It's not my own judgment of me that I'm worried about. It's the judgment of Christ. And he says about Christ that he will, it says, um, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. See, what I love about that is he says, I, I, don't, I don't know of any sin going on here, but you know what? I am confident that I will receive my commendation from God rather than condemnation from God. See, he knows who his judge is, the Lord Jesus Christ, but he knows that that judge is also his Lord and Savior, right? So I, I don't know of any, of any sin I've got that I'm walking in here, but even if there is a sin, Christ's blood has covered that already. Christ has already taken the shame that I have for any sin on the cross, and so I know that any judgment you have against me or any judgment I have against me really can't touch me because Christ has paid for my sins. I will receive my commendation from Christ, from God, it says there. And so he's not worried about that. He knows Christ will search the heart. Christ will see uh, you know, that, that he is a true believer, truly found in him. And so he says, I'm not worried about you, what you think about me. I'm not worried about what I think of me. God is the judge, Christ, the Lord is the judge, but the Lord is also my Savior. And now I, I think about this, and I've actually heard it uh, many, many times. Someone say, you can't judge me, only the Lord can judge me. Now, remember this. Last week, Paul is rebuking them for not judging a person, right? That, I mean, we saw that. So, well, you know, does this mean when Paul says it means very little to me that, that I be judged by you and I don't even judge myself, that he just is okay walking in unrepentant sin? That he would pay no regard if someone were to say, hey, Paul, I, I think you're, you're kind of messing up here. It does not mean that, okay? And we see that there in verse 6 because their problem was that they were going beyond what is written. 
they needed to learn not to go beyond what is written. So again, the charge they were bringing against him was not scriptural. It was not a, a command from God or a principle from God or anything like that that he was breaking. So his conscience was clear on the matter. That, by the way, is the root there. I am I, not aware of anything against myself. There, there's this word, uh, myself, this conscience, this, this, this clear conscience that he has. Um, so he, he doesn't believe he's walking in sin. He's comparing what, what they're calling him out on uh, to Scripture, because he's saying you guys are going beyond Scripture with this charge here. But when he sees that he is, you know, not going beyond what, or sorry, when he is not breaking any scriptural command or principle or anything that Christ would have him do, then he says, I'm not worried about it, that you would judge me. I I don't even judge myself. Because yes, we should take it very seriously if someone is calling us out on sin, and we should receive it with meekness, as we talked about last week. But we also really can compare it with scripture. And if someone says, hey, wearing a blue shirt is a sin, you shouldn't wear a blue shirt, we have every right to, like Paul, look in the Bible and say, you know, I don't see that there. And so I'm not going to worry about your judgment. I'm not even going to judge myself on this because it's the Lord who will judge me. And I'm not, I'm not walking in this sin. And if I'm somehow missing it, then Christ has paid for that sin. So there, there's a lot going on here. Again, I can't get into everything. But Paul is freed he, he, is, he is freed from this bondage of shame that other people might put upon him. And he's, he's freed from shaming other people wrongly. And what that leads to is, is this. Number three, the result is other, others-oriented service. When we're focused on ourselves, when we're only trying to bolster our own ego, it's almost impossible to serve other people. But when we are focused on Christ, when we're focused on being faithful to Christ, our lives really can be poured out as an offering to Christ for the sake of other people. We can have this others-oriented service. It's it's just a beautiful thing. Because again, we we think about this when we're focused on, on the cross, right? That has all been fully and finally paid for, all our guilt, all our shame has been paid for, then we don't have to fear being shamed by others. We don't don't have to fear being shamed by others. We don't have to, to try to boost our ego, boost our identity. We don't have to do that because we're we're found in Christ now. Right? I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is this is who I am. I, I don't need you to think highly of me. I've got the commendation of God. And so we don't have to fear that. And what that means is, uh, kind of at a heart level, we're we're able to to be open and honest. We're able to to confess our sins to one another. We can, you know, uh, be vulnerable before other people. And that keeps us from lashing out in pride. And how do we lash out with in pride? It keeps us from shaming when we should. It makes us shame unjustly. And uh, it makes us assume the worst. And it makes us shame unlovingly. That, that's, that's what we don't want. But the flip side of that is we really can shame people when they, or help them feel shame would maybe be a better way of saying it. It's the spirit that's got to do the work there to, to cause that godly grief. Uh, but we really can help them to feel shame when they're walking in sin because we're not worried about if this is going to make me look bad calling them out. We're not, we're, not, we're not worried about that anymore. 
And in addition to that, because we're truly trying to, to be faithful to Christ uh, rather than bolster our ego, trying to love that person and love the church, we can call them out in a loving way. They'll be able to hear it in our voice. They'll be able to see it in our eyes. Hey, he is, is, is calling me out on sin. I don't like it, but I can tell he's doing it for my good. And we can serve them in this way. We can, I mean, you think about faithfulness to Christ. Faithfulness to Christ within the church means that we are to teach the whole counsel of the word of God and we are to encourage one another, but we are also to hold one another accountable. So there has to be a way. There has to be a way that we can not only encourage, but hold one another accountable. And the the answer really is this Christ-focused faithfulness. That is what frees us to this others-oriented service. Really seeking their best interest. I, um, no, I'll I'll leave that. I'll tell you, when just even a few people get a hold of this, even just a few people get get, get rid of this uh, self-focused pride and and start to look to the cross of Christ, this this Christ-focused faithfulness because of what he's done for us, the freedom we have in him, the joy we have in him, it can change everything. It can change everything in one-on-one relationships. It can change everything in families. It can change everything in a church. It really can. Because people will start to see, we really can do this. We really can hold one another accountable. We, we really don't have to worry about our pride. Because you even see that about Paul. He said in verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. I'm, I have this Christ-centered uh, focus. I've got this, this desire to be faithful to him, not to man. That sounds bad, not faithful. We should be faithful to man, be honest. But, but ultimately seeking, seeking to please Christ. He says, I, I do these things for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what, it, what is written and that none of you may be puffed up. I, I want this for you guys, he's saying. And the way I'm doing it is by example. And so if just a few of us, if God does this work in our hearts, it can have an effect on everyone around us. We can have tense marriages that that have, you know, been, been, been fractured with this, been divided by this. They can become tranquil. They can become upbuilding the way a marriage is supposed to be. Maybe a friendship that used to be great, but that's now fractured by this type of thing. It can be mended as the other person sees. He really is trying to do this for my good. Or we begin to receive with meekness when they're calling us out. There's just so much here. Love, the love of Christ, love for Christ, is what fans the flame of love for one another. We love because he first loved us. That is, we love Christ and we love one another because he loved us. And that is how we can carry out this type of Shame, as odd as that sounds. It is mishandled when we don't call people out, but it is mishandled when we call them out for the wrong reasons and in the wrong way. So, I'll ask just a a couple questions. When you're called out, I asked this last week, when you are called out, are you able to receive it with meekness or do you get angry? I mean, this can tell you where you're at. If you're in the self-focused pride stage or if you're in the the Christ-focused faithfulness, can can you handle that when someone calls you out? 
When you're calling someone out, you know, rebuking them, exhorting them, whatever you want to call it, are you really doing it for their good? Is that your, your, your main motive, your, your main focus, that Christ be exalted in their life and that they, uh, you know, repent and walk faithfully with him? Is that your main focus and reason for doing it? Or is it because you just don't like what they're doing or you're trying to take them down a notch? Again, these are just to help us see and I would say if, if any of those things are true, and I know still in my life at some level those things happen, I still at some level get angry when someone calls me out. I still at some level call people out, not necessarily for their good, but for my own selfish desires. And so I ask you to join me now in this prayer that we can just lay that pride down. Let God just kill it. He's already crucified it on the cross. Let's let it up. Let, let go of it right now in our lives and ask him to replace it with a Christ-focused faithfulness. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good. And Lord, we confess that we are too often focused on ourselves, our own reputations, our own egos, Lord. And that is bondage. And it's destructive. So God, I pray that today you would help us to see what was accomplished on the cross. Full payment for the guilt of our sins and full payment for the shame of our sins, Lord. God, let us revel in that and be glad to call ourselves only servants and stewards under you, Lord. We don't need to puff ourselves up. And God, because we have that, that focus... Let us hold one another accountable, but do it in love and service towards the other, God. Lord, I pray that you would do this in my life. I pray that you do that, this in all, all the lives of these hearers, God. Because we know this is the plan for your church. This is how you'll glorify yourself. This is how you'll build up the body and how we will experience your all-consuming joy. Do this in our lives, I pray, in your Son's name. Amen.